Welcome back to another episode of the Biz Owner 360 podcast, where we explore a variety of topics to help bootstrapped entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Each week, I have a conversation with leading experts in the areas of growth, execution, leadership, wellness, and productivity. This is not the typical podcast. We have conversations that dig deep into each of the topics that we cover. The goal is to provide cutting edge but proven tactics and strategies to grow your business. The BizOwner360 podcast is now recognized as a top 3% international podcast and still growing, so thank you very much. My guest today is Steve Hoffman. He is the chairman and CEO of Founderspace, which is a global innovation hub for entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors. They have over 50 partners in 22 countries. And Steve is also a venture investor, founder of three venture-backed companies and two bootstrapped companies, and the author of several books, including Make Elephants Fly, Surviving the Startup, and most recently, The Five Forces. This was a lively discussion where we go deep on a number of topics, including how entrepreneurs get stuck, and more importantly, how to get unstuck, Razor Bootstrap, obviously coming from a good source who's done both, uh, the concept of Demand Hunter, which I loved, and quite a bit more. So if you're stuck or looking for business ideas, then this is an episode for you. Now, on to the interview. Good afternoon, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Brett, it is great to be here. Uh, definitely my pleasure. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. But before we dive into uh, a host of topics, why don't you share with the audience a little bit about your background and what you're focused on today, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Well, I've been an entrepreneur, so I know exactly what it's like. I did three venture-funded startups in Silicon Valley and two bootstrap startups, and now I'm an investor. So I work with lots of entrepreneurs. I am also the CEO of Founderspace, which is a global startup incubator and accelerator. And I help entrepreneurs with all the problems when they're launching their companies, everything from their business model to pitching investors to how do they go to market, design of their products, you name it. And lastly, I'm an author. I've written three books. So my first book, Make Elephants Fly is all about the process of radical innovation. It's what entrepreneurs do. How do you take that big idea that, that's your elephant that seems impossible to get off the ground and how do you get it off the ground? My new book that came out this past year, Surviving a Startup, is exactly that. What do entrepreneurs need to know to survive, grow, and come out on top? And another book, because I've been very prolific during COVID, is The Five Forces. It came out this past year. And The Five Forces is all about how technologies like AI, robotics, CRISPR, gene editing, nanotechnology, brain-computer interfaces, how they will change our lives and our businesses. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I'm definitely looking forward to your books. I'm a huge reader. So I was going to ask you in the podcast, which one should I start with? But I think I'm starting with five forces and I'll, I'll work my way backwards. But awesome. um, yeah, my original thought was, hey, how do we, you know, what's the best way to grow a business in 2022? But you, you kind of led with something, man, how do we start a business today? Because I think part of it and a lot of the audience that's listening is thinking about starting a business and don't know where to get started. 
right? It, it's hard and it takes a while, but I, I mean, I believe it's the future. We're, we're starting to see it. So maybe let's start there. Why? I, I completely believe this is the best time ever to start a business, especially in the B2B space, but love to get one, your perspective on that too. And, and how do we get people to get started? Well, starting a business, a lot of people think I should start with an idea. I have to have a brilliant idea, that epiphany that launches my company. But I actually tell people that isn't the best way to start a business. In fact, throw out your ideas. I mean, you can keep your ideas, but they should not be the focus of why you start a business. So there are a couple things you need to do first. Now, the first and most important thing beyond anything else is figure out who do you need to work with to actually execute on something in the B2B space? Are you super technical? Do you have the knowledge, the ability, the, the resources to get that done? Do you need to bring somebody on? Are you a great designer? Because we all know in the B2B space, especially if it's software, design matters. Design is almost enough in many cases to be the innovation that pushes your company ahead of all the competitors. And equally important, are sales. Like, are you the natural salesperson? You know, I like to say, you have to know where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. And right at the beginning, you should be spending 80% of your time focused on finding those people that complement you, where you can build a business together. Because honestly, if you don't have the right team in place, you can have the best idea in the world. And I've seen it. Like people, like they have, they pitch me, like it's just absolutely an amazing idea. But invariably they fumble the ball. Like they can't execute on it. Somebody else, those ideas are out there. If you have it, somebody right. else has it. They pick up the ball, they run, they score the touchdown. You're left with nothing. And so the other problem is if you start working on something, this great idea, you tend to want to believe in it. You want to believe <laughs> your idea is like the most brilliant thing ever. We all do. And so you end up having a confirmation bias. You end up filtering out negative feedback at the beginning. And that can cause you to waste a huge amount of time because all these things that aren't working, you're like, they just don't get it or it's not far enough along. If I push it a little further, then everything will fall into place. It usually doesn't work that way. If you have a really, really good idea, you can see at the very beginning signs that it is working. And this is why I tell entrepreneurs, your number one job, first of all, is to be a leader and is to attract the greatest people possible. Not your cousin Joey, not you know who, your old dorm mate just because they're available, to attract really amazing people on your team. Once you do that, you get together and it's not just your idea, it's all of your ideas. And you try, you don't lock in on one idea before the idea has proven itself. Your job as an entrepreneur isn't to prove your idea works. It's up to the idea to prove to you that it works. So what you want to do is generate lots of ideas and then go out into the real world. And the beauty of B2B, why I love B2B, is because you can go straight to your customers. It's not like consumer where you have to build the whole thing. You can go at an early stage before you built a lot and you can engage with them and run. Don't keep your ideas a secret. Like Your ideas aren't worth anything until they're validated. And the only way to know if they, your job isn't to like prove an idea works, it's to gather information. You are like a detective. Like, oh, dude, is part of this idea right? Is all of it right? Do, how does the customer respond? And let me tell you, 
let's say I've had entrepreneurs and I've told them, they ask me like, is this a great idea? You know, is this a brilliant idea? And I'm like, I don't know. First of all, I'm probably not even their customer, right? So I don't right, know if right. he's that. And secondly, I'm just one person. I'm like, go on and ask a hundred of your target customers, the people who are most likely to buy this and come back to me and t tell, tell me if this is great. And so the entrepreneur will run out there, I've had him, and he asked a hundred different people. He came back to me and he said, you know, everybody I asked said, that's interesting. Come, yeah, we want to see it. Come back when it's done. We'll try it out. They all seemed to like it. And I looked at him and I said, you're dead in the water. Like, <laughs> right. you, you are dead. Everybody will tell you to come back later. They'll try it out. They just want to get rid of you. Nobody's going to say anything super negative. They're all going to nod their head. Oh, that's interesting. I, I like it. The, what you need to hear at the beginning from maybe not all 100 people, but at least a good portion of them, you need to hear this. Not, oh, that's interesting. I like it. Come back later. What you need to hear is, oh my God, I need that now. How can I get it? It's exactly what we need to get done. Tell me, I want it. I, I'm on board. If you don't get that response, even before you've spent a lot of time building it and all the other stuff, don't build anything until you start getting that response. People have to be like, I need that. And it, that extreme need is what determines a winning a product from a, uh, a product that will never go anywhere. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen entrepreneurs spend six months, even a year or more, building out a product that's a nice to have. Nobody wants nice to have products. <laughs> you know, I like to say if it's not on their top five priorities, their top five of all their, whoever your customer is, they'll never get to it. They will never get to it because why should they? They're focused on the top five. <laughs> that consumes all their time. Yeah, so good. So much good value in there, too. A couple of things I do want to un unpack a little bit. And let's start with uh, the last part, need to have versus nice to have. 100%. Nice to haves in like a booming economy. They've got some extra cash. They may buy your product. But yeah, go find that need to have. What's your take on, you know, you had kind of the idea versus solving a problem. I think it maybe it's just semantics of the way. But curious, because I like to advise people, man, what problem are you solving? Is it a need to solve problem or is it a nice to solve problem? So that we, I'm assuming we're kind of saying the same language, but just interested in your perspective on that. Yeah. So the way you find out what business you're in is you go to your target customers. They could be like in the fishing industry or in the restaurant industry or any industry, whatever you target, you and your team, you go in there. And like you said, you don't spend a lot of time trying to sell them. You spend a lot of time observing them, asking questions, engaging them, and figuring out where are they having problems. And these might not even be problems they recognize as problems. Like they might not be able to tell you, oh, this is our biggest problem because it's how they've always done things. Like they've always done it this way. And so it's not a problem to them. It's a lot of work. And you could look at that and say, wow, with new technology, with new, a new business model, with this innovation, we could make that so much less time consuming, so much more efficient. And then you go to them once you like identify, oh, this is something they're expending a lot of resources, paying on a lot of money on, whatever it is. And you say, how would you like it if we did that? Then you look at their reaction. They go like, you oh, could yes. do that. <laughs> you could do that for me. And, and if you get that reaction, yeah, I want that. Like that, that would make my business so much easier. Um, that is golden. 
And this is why I like to say an entrepreneur's job is actually not to come up with the great ideas. An entrepreneur's job is to go out into the real world and find where there is untapped, pent-up demand. In the real world, there's always pockets of demand that aren't being met. It's either because they have done something the, the same way forever, and now there's new technology that can, wow, make that so much easier, so much more efficient. Or it's because new technologies and new ways of doing things have created needs out there that didn't exist before. And if you want to really grow a business, if you go out there and do what everybody, you, there's demand out there. We all know it. We can see people buying products every day. But if we go and get entrenched players that are already like offering the service and they're way ahead of us, it's very hard to differentiate ourselves. It's very hard to get high profit margins. It's very hard to grow your business. However, if you can go out there and look for pools of demand that literally your competitors have overlooked and they aren't being met yet, you could tap into one of those, boom, it's like an oil gusher. Like that yeah. is what grows your company. People look at it like it's magic when these companies grow so fast. It's not magic. It's that they figured something out uh, that other people were overlooking, that they weren't addressing, and they went after that, and there was an extreme need. And there's enough, the more customers are out there, the bigger your business will be. Even if they're niche customers for a small business, if you're running a small business, you don't have a big overhead, you can make a lot of money. And you can have a really vibrant, great business for very small niches now. But, you know, the more there are out there, the more potential you have for long-term growth. Yeah. And I think the term you've used, I've heard you say in the past is demand hunter, right? Become a demand hunter. That's exactly. I love that, right? It's such a great phrase. Yeah. So in like in Surviving a Startup, my book, yeah, I write about becoming a demand hunter. That is what entrepreneurs are. That's what truly innovative entrepreneurs are. So if you like line up the great team and together you go on this mission to hunt for demand, you don't have to have any idea. You just pick an area you're all really interested on innovating in. Like, you know, we're totally passionate about transforming the fishing industry. Like we want to make it more sustainable. We want to make it more profitable. We want to do all these things. Boom, you go into there. But you can have the best ideas for making the fishing industry more sustainable. But if there's no demand, <laughs> none of the fishermen, no business. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you won't change that industry. Now that's fantastic. And a perfect segue back to the other part I wanted to get to is that team, because I think that's a really interesting idea like rocket fuel back in the day talked about the the, the ag, not the aggregate now i'm drawing a blank the visionary and the integrator right the vision the operations and curious to test a theory on it because one of the the stats that drives me in this space is you know one out of ten businesses get to a million dollars and you know 99 out of 100 don't get to 10 right and the number i can and we can understand kind of the 10 percent that get to a million between side hustles people's heart wasn't in picked the wrong whatever it is but if you get to to a million i i contend that there's no reason why you can't get to you know 10 million if you can get to one you should be able to get to 10 there should be enough unless you sold one product for a million dollars maybe not but i think this ties back to maybe what your point was with having the right team because i think what i find a lot is those people that get to or close to a million you know, they hit that capacity. It's it's a one person shop and they can hustle and maybe they're really good at sales. They can get that, but it's somewhat, you just can't bring any more. And a lot of these businesses get stuck, but maybe having that right team or that right partner or that right group can help you get through that, that transition period. So yes, curious this is one. The hardest thing I've seen it, you know, a lot of my friends who run consultancies and things like that, they tend to hit that million mark 
but they get stymied because they end up being the core, the driver of that business. And they can't find the talent on the level that will take their business to the, you know, beyond that million mark because they're drive, they're doing most of the sales. They're doing most of, you know, guiding the company. And really it's a huge challenge for these businesses to get to the, that 10 million mark that you talk about, because that's what we call where I'm from Silicon Valley scalability. Like, can you right. scale a business? How do you set up a business to scale? Now I had one of my best friends, he, his company hit a million consultancy and tech space. He's been trying for years to get to 10 million, like literally for years. And he would hire people and they just wouldn't work out. Like he can hire engineers. That's great. But when he tried to hire higher level people to kind of manage the whole process with the customers, people to go out and really sell, not sort of sell, but like him really close deals, right. he could he would bring these on these people and then they would just underperform. And so I'm telling you what it requires is a huge investment in your time to find those great people and not like one of the mistakes I saw him make is repeatedly is he's a super nice guy and he would give people who weren't working out a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. He had one salesperson kept this salesperson on for two years. And I, you know, I talked to him periodically and he'd be like, oh, that salesperson, he just, he isn't selling, you know? And, and I'm like, well, you got to let him go. And he goes, well, I'll just give him one more chance. You know, he's a really nice guy. He has all these things. <laughs> Finally, after two years, comes back to that person. He was paying the person a lot of money. And he says, you know, you're not hitting any of your targets. We're going to have to let you go. But you know what? He's a nice guy. So he goes, you know what? Those those projects you have in the pipeline, I'm actually going to convert you, you know, I'm going to allow you to, if you want to keep working on those and you close those, I'll give you the commission on them because some of them are pretty close, you know, so you, instead of just cutting you out of that. Right, so right. he was a nice guy. He did that. Um, the next thing he knows, he's, that guy is suing him. After oh, no. all that he did for that guy, <laughs> and how nice he, he's suing him because he converted him from a full-time employee to a consultant. Uh, and in California labor laws, if you do that, you open yourself up to liability. Like, <laughs> oh man! And so much. He, I mean, he was in court. He has to hire lawyers. He has to defend himself. He has to do all this and the anger that somebody who he bent over backwards to be nice to, because of that, is actually suing him. It just left him. I mean, he's a great guy, so he got over it. He like yeah. he tried to look on the bright side. He goes, "I learned a lot. I learned a lot from this." <laughs> but that's about all you can say. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think too. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. You know, go, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to just. I mean, fortunate that he's running a really nice business that he can afford to make some of those mistakes. Because some of these businesses, if they make that the wrong mistake, it, it can tend to sink them because of. In some cases, it's a 12 to 18 month, and maybe they went way too big on the hire, right? And spent locked somebody in that the business wasn't ready for and cash. Oh, I know. Whatever it, reason, this was right? costing him a bundle. He's paying this guy a lot without commissions. You know, I was surprised. And then, you know, he had another problem because he's a super nice guy. So he had this client that had was hiring him to to build out this whole system for them and everything they're doing. And the client was a client from hell. 
<laughs> you know, they were disorganized. They wouldn't give them a plan. When they gave them a plan, they would change the plan. And every time it changed, it's a lot of added costs. And he, we, you know, because we're such good friends, we're always talking. He goes, you know, my, I will not let this client down. I will make sure to deliver the product. I will do whatever it takes. And I'm like, look, this sometimes you have to fire your client. <laughs> you have right, to let them right, go right. because they are only going to, if they're this bad right now, you're never going to please them. You know, this went on for like a year and finally he did fire the client. <laughs> It was the only way. But again, he had to learn the hard way that, you know, you just can't do that. You have to set really strict guidelines. And a lot of times you have to, you have to turn down business if they won't accept your process. You know, if they won't, they won't pay the fees that are required for you to do good work. Like he doesn't want to do shoddy work. So he won't underbid. He won't do, you know, he has to make it clear, you know, this is a value. This is what I delivered. This is why my clients are so happy. This is why, you know, we do what we do. Those things are really important for to get your business to the next level. You have to, you know, internalize those lessons. And a lot of people can only do it once they live through it. Right. Yeah. And back to his point, well, I learned more lessons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. If I didn't fire the employee, didn't fire the customer. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he's still pushing forward, right? He's still do- he's doing better than ever because he does awesome. great work. <laughs> at the end of the day, that's the key. He may right? hit and that think- 10 million mark, I'll tell you, because he's awesome. learning from each of these. When those are the we want more people to succeed, right? Because if yeah. they don't and they get stuck, they get burned out, then either they go back into the corporate world, which I wish on nobody, or they end up right starting over trying another project. So yeah, yeah by so doing perfect. great work, I think he's at like halfway to the 10 million mark right now. Okay. So he's, he's made and a lot good. of he's got progress. The momentum going then <laughs> <laughs> in a perfect segue again, man, you're good at this because what, what I, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, and how do we grow a business in 2022? Right. We talked about starting it and the ideas and the demand hunter thought, love all that. Now we've got some momentum Right. And again, I always lead with never, never better time. The, the, the pandemic basically leveled the playing field in the B2B world, right? With more digital first, not 100% there. But, you know, what do you tell your entrepreneurs that, you know, how do we, how do we grow? What are some of the things that we should be thinking about right now? Well, let me give you a few. So, number one, okay. you want to grow to business customer acquisition. Like, how do you acquire the right customer at the right cost? You know, and you need to invest in that. You need to invest in that in terms of knowledge training yourself, training your team, bringing on the right people who know how to reach and sell these customers, whether it's face-to-face, whether it's marketing, you have a funnel, doing all that stuff. Uh, But there are other aspects that people don't talk about as much. And one of these uh, that I would like to mention is understanding what types of businesses grow naturally. Like there are different business models out there, some of which work much better than others. So if you're in a business where you have to acquire a customer and then you either sell that customer a product or you service them, provide service to them, and then that customer goes away and they're not, they're, you're not engaged with them after that and you have to acquire another customer, that is a very tough business because the most time-consuming, resource-consuming, expensive thing most companies do is customer acquisition as well as paying their employees, right? Employee costs are high. But, you know, second to employee costs, it's customer acquisition. And that means uh, that when you get a customer, whenever you get a customer, never let go of that customer. 
<laughs> Never sell that. If you have products or services that you're selling, sell them on a recurring revenue basis. And that means that the customer keeps coming back to you over and over again for either more services or more products. And if you look at every major successful business in the world, they're doing one of two things. Either they're selling super high value ticket products like a car, right? You know, right. a car, you're, you know, you're going to buy. And even when you buy a car, they try to sell you on recurring revenue because they, they literally maintenance and they, right, maintenance. Right. They want you to come back for maintenance. They have a warranty plans that they try to tie you into where you keep paying these warranties. They also now, if you look at the automobile industry, they're wising up and they are building in features to cars that you have to continue to pay for. Like Elon Musk with the full self-driving feature, you have to pay yeah. for that on a subscription model. And it's not cheap. It's like hundreds of dollars, like a month. It's crazy. You know, simple things like turning on your car remotely. Now they're starting to charge a subscription fee for that. So even in the auto industry where they get a lot of yeah. money from you up front, they're, they're using that model. But more, most importantly, in the B2B space, what can you do to make it so that your customer is always coming back to you for more? That is critical. Uh, there's some other things I want to talk about. So when they come back to you for more, it could be small items, but they, they recur often. So like a purchase on Amazon, right? The people come back to Amazon, but they're always buying a, you know, a little more and Amazon's getting a little more money and they're buying lots of little monies add up. When you come back to Uber, to use Uber again, you're paying them a little more each time. Whatever you're doing, it can be an ongoing fee that you charge your customers, maintenance fees. It can be ongoing uh, permanent consulting fees. It could be features, advanced features of your product, or it could be the, a SaaS model itself for your product. All of these really, really important to growing your business. And it's not just the money that you gain when you have this recurring relationship. What you want is you're always exchanging value in return for something uh, for their engagement. And when the customer is engaged with you, it means that you have a direct dialogue, ongoing dialogue with this customer. That is critical because I will tell you the growth to grow your business, right? It's not just acquiring new customers. That's an expensive proposition. The easiest way to grow your business is to take your existing customers and figure out to how to give them more value. How can you offer them more? If you give them more value in return, they will give you more money and your revenue will grow. So I always say, if you're not talking to your customers monthly, like figuring out, like, are there things we could improve? Are there things that you're not getting from other people that we could offer you? Or, you know, they will tell you where your future is. They nice. will tell you how to grow your business. All you have to do is ask them, observe, and listen carefully. And that's great. Now, there's one more thing. I don't want to end there because there's something really important. Can I, can I yeah, stop? Yeah, gonna, jump in. Don't, don't lose that thought because okay. I do yeah. want you to, to, to go there. But with that, that business model, I think it's super interesting. I think many companies aren't taking advantage of anything as a service, right? I mean, I look at you know my, my Whoop band, right? They don't sell me the, the band. They sell me a subscription and they give me the band for free, right, that I'm paying for. So they kind of change. Like if you buy an Apple Watch, you buy the watch. You get the service for free. They flipped it the other way and said, hey, we'll give you the band. You just pay us on a monthly fee for the metrics, blah, 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 blah. Said, but I think in the business world, there's a lot of opportunities. And I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think, you know, if you could charge a company, you know, $999 a month versus $10,000 up front once, 
it's easier for most companies to swallow the monthly charge versus the one-time big hit may be easier to sell. Are you seeing a trend to more of the B2Bs trying to do this? I, I thought yes. there was a push for a little bit, but I'm not seeing it as much, or maybe I'm just not hearing about it as much as I was. You should be trying to do it. So if you aren't, you should. You may have to charge a setup fee at the beginning because a lot right. of times the, in the B2B space, there's a lot of intensive work that goes up. You may have to charge for even making a proposal. You know, a lot of the people in the B2B space, I tell them, you know, they'll, they'll work your butt off <laughs> spending like a month going back and forth with them on a proposal and then choose some other vendor. Like, it, you're right. like, oh, oh my God, I just spent a month of our time like working on, you know, so people who are serious and what you have to do upfront is explain your process, explain the value you add bringing a proposal and explain why your proposal will be uh, so valuable to them. Uh, and charge for that upfront, charge a setup fee if you need a setup fee, but then migrate them onto a model where there's recurring revenue because that is, uh, you can't get a better model and you might need some of those upfront costs, but you could dramatically lower those upfront costs by putting them on a long-term model. And when you have a long-term model, you could sign a three-year contract like for recurring revenue and they're, you're guaranteed that money. So you know, you're going to get it. You just build that into your business model. So yeah. I think it's really important. The other thing I want to say is don't think of selling services and don't think of selling products. This is where a lot of companies fail to take advantage of the really big, the big growth opportunities. Think of selling a platform. Now, a platform is different because what a platform as opposed to a product or service does is a platform allows the customers to engage with you on a much deeper level. And by this, I mean, what a platform does is if you look at these platforms out there, you actually get the customers to be adding value to the overall ecosystem you are creating. So companies that really thrive, thrive and ward off competitors because they lock their customers in to an ecosystem. So they can't just compete on price. Now, let me, let me give you a great B2B example. Please. You know, Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, was a brilliant guy. Like he saw the whole cloud computing, you know, SaaS model. He was a pioneer. What makes Salesforce so great is not their CRM product, honestly. It's a bloated product. It's an old product, has a lot of legacy problems. There are other upstart companies out there with lower priced solutions more elegant, user-friendly solutions, solutions that just work a lot better on their own. Those products work better. Those services work better. But what Salesforce did was they built an ecosystem. So yeah. it's not just Salesforce itself you're buying. When you step into the Salesforce ecosystem, they have all these third-party developers who've created all these amazing things on top of Salesforce's platform. And when customers use this platform, they end up using these third-party things because they're so attractive. And if they use enough of the third-party things, they find out they can't leave Salesforce because none of those other upstarts, the third parties don't want to go to the upstarts because they're too new, right? Even right, if they have a better right. product, they're, they don't have enough users. 
And so all the developers come to Salesforce because that's where all the users are. And all the users come to Salesforce because that's where the developers are. You create this network effect, this two-sided marketplace, which is kind of the core of these ecosystems, which is what drives value. So every time a customer engages with Salesforce, they are engaging with Salesforce plus all the other third parties, and they are giving feedback to them, and they are creating a much they are creating a much richer ecosystem for everybody else involved. For most people out there, you can just look at a big company like Amazon. Why is the Amazon marketplace so powerful? I'll tell you. One of the biggest things, I mean, you know, they deliver, they have scale, they are always adding value to their customer in terms of new services like free movies and free music players and, you know, and fast delivery. But the other thing is, every time I engage with Amazon, I am making their platform smarter and better. So whatever products I'm looking at and buying or even not buying is data that Amazon has, right? So that they can improve their marketplace. Every time I review a product, what am I doing? I am expressing my opinion about that product, which I feel good about, but I'm also enriching the ecosystem because every other user of Amazon benefits from my review and I benefit from all the reviews of everybody else. And the more vendors the third parties Amazon attracts, the more robust their ecosystem, the more competitive it is, the more customers it attracts, and in turn, the more third parties it attracts. So whatever B2B project you're in, if you can think of it, can I bring in third parties? Can I bring? Can I allow my customers to invest in this? And can I take what they've invested and create value for all the other customers? If you can do this, you are creating a uh, something truly valuable, something that has huge growth potential. That's awesome. I love that idea because we're starting to see more and more that the, the double marketplace right makes makes sense. But don't stop there. Is basically what you're saying. If I interpret that right, treat it more as a platform, just not getting two sides matchmaking. But how do you make it more interactive, more engagement, more value add from both sides, and everybody's going to win, right? And it doesn't even have to be a marketplace. It can literally be the more customers I get on here. The more yeah. data information uh, I am able to use to make a better product or service for all the other customers. Like, how can I do that? How can I engage my products? Also, how can I lock them in? How can I get people to invest time and resources into my platform, which is more than a product, so that they find it very hard to leave. Look at Oracle, right? You know, a lot of people, you know, people can't leave Oracle once they've integrated it. Like they've invested so many time and resources. Their whole process in their company is, you know, built around that. Very hard to leave. Think of, you know, creating value that ends up locking the customer in. Really good strategy. Yeah, I love that. We'll have to maybe bring you back sometime and do a deeper dive into that because I Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of untapped conversations that we have. But I know we're starting to run a little low on time, but I can't let you go without having the conversation about bootstrap or raise, right? I mean, who better to talk about this than somebody that's done it both ways? And right, there's people passionate on both sides. Bootstrap, never give up ownership. And then there's ventures while I need money to run. So I just would love your perspective doing it both ways. And there's probably not one right answer, but yeah, what... What says you? <laughs> I will tell you some of the most satisfying businesses I've ever run were bootstrapped. So uh, because you have complete control, you can do whatever you want. When you raise money, you bring in partners and those partners have their own objectives. And if they don't align with yours, 
or their style of management doesn't, or their personalities don't, it can be a nightmare. It can not be good. That said, there are certain types of businesses that you will want to raise for and ones that you won't. I always say at the beginning stages, don't count on raising capital. Like you're going to bootstrap no matter what in most cases, because even with crazy amounts of money flowing, investors right. want you to prove something to them. They want to see that the business works, that this is going. So be prepared to bootstrap at the beginning, no matter what. And when you're bootstrapping, think of what you like, what quality of life you want, what role you want. Do you want to be managing a big company? Is this for you? Do you like the control? Do you need the control? Do you need uh, you know, to be a billionaire to be happy? Or can you be happy with a, a good income and a good business? The only time, uh, you know, if you're super ambitious and you want to do a billion dollar company and, you know, all, all that's involved in that, by all means do that. But if you right. are on the fence, which most people are, they're like, I could be happy either way. <laughs> but uh, uh, a lot of times the big companies you end up getting kicked out of anyway, you know, they end up replacing you. A lot of things happen. Things don't always go. A lot of times you'll get, a, you know, a, the great thing about doing bootstrapped is all that profit can go into your pocket. Like you can right. decide, do I reinvest it in the business or do I put it in my pocket? Once you take on investors, you don't have that choice. Like you cannot just put the money in your pocket because they own part of the company and they're going to want you to reinvest it in the company. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs, they'll take an investment and it won't work out and they'll end up getting very little because they put in a lot of sweat equity, even their own money. And that it's, when they brought on investors, they were not able to reap the profits and the business went a direction they didn't want to. And boom, you know, it ends up failing. They, they wind up with zero. So right. that's a risk. Now, the time to take in venture capital is really when you look at the marketplace and you see, wow, I've identified a huge opportunity, something incredibly explosive. This thing is going to be, you know, there is so much pent up demand, as we talked about demand hunting, yeah. that this thing is going to become huge and it's a winner take all market. Like if, honestly, I had a friend, he founded a company called Rise. It was ahead of LinkedIn. It was doing essentially what LinkedIn was doing, but earlier he had huge growth, like huge growth, making tons of money. Didn't take in outside money. Nobody knows who, who Rise is uh, anymore. They only yeah. know LinkedIn. You, you know, it's a, for, for certain markets out there, it's winner take all, and it's a big market. And if you don't take capital, you honestly won't be around, not even as a niche player. Like it's, they, the big guys just gobble up everything. So in those cases, yes, going for venture capital is the right decision. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, I agree with you too. Because I, I think what you said it was spot on. What's the goal? What do you want out of this, right? If it is... You know, the, uh, I, I always tell the entrepreneurs and business, I mean, 10 million is, should be your, your target, right? Because at 10 million, really good profit flow should be coming through the business. You should be working on your business, not in your business. Private equity would be now interested, right? The lower end of the private equity, yeah. 10 million would be interested. Venture would definitely be interested if you were able to grow it to 10. So I think it just kind of opens all the doors. But man, there's just so many people, especially younger folks that I work with, they seem to care more about the fundraise than they actually do building a, a good yeah, product. Yeah, they, they want the easy company. money. They want the right. easy. They, they think like if I get raised venture capital, it's all done. Let me tell you, still the majority of venture capital companies fail. You just don't hear about them. Right. You hear about the rate. And again, that drives you hear about me nuts. You hear about the successful raises, not that they actually accomplished anything in the valuations yet. So I get it. I mean, the, 
the romanticism of it, everything is there. But man, I'm a cash flow guy at heart. I found out, so I like the I like the good steady businesses that grow and you know they can multiply. You know, and again, to your point, 100 goes back to you, and you do with it what you want. <laughs> yeah, you can do much better often in a, a business with a great cash flow, 10 million, you know, coming in the door, than you do with any venture fund company. You your percentage gets diluted. You get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then a lot of these companies end up. You know, they might sell for 100 million, which sounds like a lot of money, but when investors have put in 60 million. And, and they have preferences on extracting their money. A lot of times the entrepreneur won't get anything. <laughs> Which is crazy. Which you no, don't, I've known right. people who have sold their companies for like $100 million plus and gotten nothing. Wow. Wow. That's, that's tough. Again, back bootstrap if you can. But I, I think you're right. There's certain businesses, timing, market, rush to market, whatever it is. There are certain scenarios. But I know with all these startups out there, they're not all in those buckets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so... Awesome. All right. I know we're running low on time and I really, really appreciate this conversation. Definitely going to have to have you back for, for part Great. two. I can't believe it's taken me 150 episodes to, to get you on here. But, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. So if folks want to learn more about you and you know, what's the best way for them to, to track you down and connect with you? So the easiest way to get a hold of me is just go to founderspace.com. Founderspace. That it, you can... I have tons of videos there, other materials, lots of startup materials. You can contact me from Founders Space. I have my books, Surviving a Startup, you know, the five forces that change everything, all on Founders Space. And I'm also on all the social networks. Just search for Founders Space or Steve Hoffman. LinkedIn is a great one. You can reach out to me there. Yeah, content's fantastic. Highly encourage you to check it out. I'm actually going to I've already ordered your books off of Amazon. So Thank you. on my reading list here in the short term, and I'll do a little bit of a, a, a review when we're done. And usually I apologize. Mm-hmm. That we had a short connection time yes. before we met and back on. So I usually like to read your books before you have it on. So this is, you know, my apologies to you. I will read the book and we'll have you back on to, oh, to talk I about them. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. It's awesome. All right, Steve, my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great rest of your day and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Great.